Hey guys, this is our weekly podcast by Cornerstone Church of Ione. We're so glad that you decided to join. We are a church family passionate about seeing people worship Jesus, grow in their faith, and serve those around them. If you would like to learn more about Cornerstone, please visit us at cornerstoneione.org, or you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram. I was advised that some of the service would be different, although I wasn't given too many details. But uh, So I get to do announcements now. So as the kids are leaving, if you have a bulletin, open that up. I want to start off by saying that Tom Reed uh, did a fundraiser. It got smoked out, actually, the first time around. He did it this last weekend. He was going to ride 72 miles. Uh, various people sponsored him per mile in order to raise money to send kids to winter camp. And uh, he completed the 72 miles, as we suspected. And he raised enough to assist uh, two or three kids going to camp. So that was really neat. So thank you, Tom. Um, Additionally, there is a harvest party that is coming up. Now, uh, we have moved it to the grass lot in Ione in order to hyper-focus on inviting the community in and the community seeing that we are, we are very much alive and active in various ways, including inviting the community into things and loving on the community a bit. So our hope is uh, that I believe that as culture continues, going into a church will become more and more odd for people. And as I've talked to other people who have never been to a church and ask them uh, why, it's typically not necessarily that they're atheists, it's that they're scared of us. And so part of this is engaging in the community, inviting the community in, in this somewhat neutral place where we can redeem a holiday a bit um, and uh, help invite people into Sunday morning. So That's our goal there. Part of how we're going to do that is we do have some carnival games that we need people to run. Um, I do want to take a moment, maybe even a moment of silence, and honor the 175 people who agreed to make cakes for the cakewalk. (laughs) So we appreciate that. Now we need people to run the carnival games. we got a couple people wanting to build them. Let me give you one example of how simple this is and how you could be useful. Um, How many of you have been to a carnival uh, where there is a game, and either you're going to have to be Baptist um, or a poor carnival, okay? And so we're, we're going to do one of those two, and we're going to have these games out there. And I don't know if you've played this one, but there's a frame that has a sheet that has fish on it stapled to a two-by-four frame. And then you take a stick with a string and a clothespin on the end. You fling it over. Somebody puts the candy on it, gives it a little tug, and you reel in a candy. If they have done that for you, it's now your time to give back, okay? We need people to run games like that. Pumpkin bowling, there's a spinny thing, uh, various uh, games. We just need you to sign up. They're in the back there. So if you can and you're willing, sign up. You're like, I don't know how it's played. That's okay. We're going to walk you through that. We need willing people to step in and do fishing stuff and pumpkin bowling and things like that, okay? Sign-ups are in the back. Um, We have a business meeting next week, so for those of you who are members that like to be like, well, I'm a little hungry and Brian went over, so I have an excuse not to be there, we actually need you there this next Sunday because we are going to be voting on the 2023 proposed budget. They're available in the back for you to look at. If you have questions, reach out to us ahead of time so we can have those conversations so that we're all prepared uh, to have a vote or if there's a discussion needed to have that discussion there. But let's try to get those discussions um, out of the way ahead of time. 
Uh, also next week, not only do we have a very exciting business meeting, we have one of our missionaries, Paul Marie Lehman. They're uh, going to come in and they, whenever our missionaries ask, hey, I'm going to be in town, can I come in and share? Um, I love that because I'm going to ask you a question. Don't be embarrassed. I'm going to raise my hand too. How many of you guys are not sure what our missionaries do? Raise your hand. Okay. So first service are the people who are really struggling. You guys just don't even come next week. You guys are going to be fine. Last service, almost all of us raised our hand. We struggle to know what our missionaries are actually doing. Uh, part of what Paul is going to do, he's going to be preaching from John chapter 1, but he's also going to be sharing with us what his ministry is doing day in and day out, so we should be able to learn a bit from that. Also, we are doing a Christmas uh, in Haiti project. Uh, if you see the tables out there, there are a bunch of gifts on the table. Those are things that we are going to then mail off to Texas that are going to be put into a container and then shipped off to Haiti where they're going to do a Christmas project down there with hundreds of uh, kids there and give them this gift, explain why uh, Christians are sending these gifts and tell them about the real gift of uh, Jesus Christ and salvation made possible by the work of Jesus on the cross. So um, anyways, those will be on the back and they're going to be picked up, um, I believe, I think the last day technically is tomorrow night, but I think the majority of them are going to get picked up today. So get those there um, so that we can get those picked up and shipped off. Lastly, it is Pastor Appreciation uh, Month or day or whatever people uh, uh, want to do. And uh, months ago, uh, I had... Um, I was talking to a couple people and I said that um, I want to do something special for CJ this year uh, because this is his first year um, as technically a pastor, although he did many pastoral things before that. And um, those guys, uh, long story short, said, we got this, Brian. And so they took off and ran with it. But there is something I wanted to share this morning um, about CJ and just appreciating him. Uh, as Nate actually said uh, outside, if you were there for that, um, we knew CJ, he, uh, he knew the previous pastor here. He came here, started volunteering with Bethany and youth ministry, and we got to know him that, that way, and uh, we became the closest of friends and spent a lot of time together, and um, then they uh, left, broke our hearts, went to Kentucky, and um, there was a moment where our lead pa previous lead pastor moved back up to Washington and they were looking for a new lead pastor. And long story short, I ended up in that position and so we needed to fill this youth ministry position, somebody to lead the young people in Cornerstone. And um, so in June of 2018, we hired CJ as the youth director to come here. Um, as many people have already noted, if you know CJ, there's something, if you have kids, you value this. That he cares far more about your kids knowing what they believe and why they believe it than he does that they ate pizza that week. And the reason why our hearts share in that is we know this, people here, we know the statistics, what happens in college, right? And so what we want to do is prepare them for that because I don't think it's because they get uh, really strong information in college that uh, counters their belief system. I don't think they have a belief system. And so we wanted somebody that could come in and that would care about that same thing and carry that forward and care for and shepherd these young people. And so uh, we, one thing that I said then, and Emily and I both say again today, is that... Um, 
There is not another youth pastor I know that I'd rather be working here at Cornerstone than CJ. And I know because I sat in the youth men department at a huge Bible college. And those guys were goons for the most part. (laughs) They cared about slip and slides and pizza parties and food fights and turkey bowling. Where CJ cares about these kids' souls. And we care about that. And so we say the same thing today at this moment that there's nobody else I'd rather have here at Cornerstone pastoring our young people than CJ. And so I just want you guys to know that we appreciate him. And where my heart is with him. So with that, let me pray. Um, And then after I uh, stop praying, I want you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 3. Okay, let's pray. Father, I... uh, um, On a day like this, it's hard not to be just reminded yet again how blessed CJ and I are to be here. And how gracious Cornerstone has been to us. And how fulfilling... uh, these roles we have are able to be as uh, you allow us to exhibit your, your plan. I feel uh, regularly unqualified in some sense for this role, that there are greater men than I that could do a better job here, but you have called myself here to shepherd and care for and love and protect these people, and so I'll do that. God, I pray that you would... Uh, Continue to humble me, continue to help me grow even by the hands of the people sitting in front of me. And that together we can study your word. We can worship you in song. We can give of our time, our talents, and our treasures. That we could spread the good news here locally in Ione and around the world in various ways. Whether creative or boring that your word goes forth and that lives are changed. And we recognize that it's not by our power, it is by your power, and you build your church, and we are humbled to be a part of that process. As we study your word again this morning, we've got to pray that uh, you would anoint this time that we have together. And in Jesus Christ's name, amen. So I know a bad habit of mine is to go a little long, because like every elder and their mom came and told me that I cannot go long today. So we're going to make sure, and we're going to stay on time, okay? So as you've turned to Acts chapter 3, I'm going to help summarize and catch us up in Acts chapter 1 and uh, 2. The resurrected Jesus promises the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 1. He then ascends into heaven after giving them the great commission. He ascends into heaven, and these apostles then go to what we commonly know as the upper room, a room that is upper. And they wait there, as the Lord told them, to wait for the promised Holy Spirit. So they are waiting there. There are about 108 people with them in total, about 120. They obviously had to replace Judas because Judas betrayed Jesus and then committed suicide. In Acts chapter 2, the promise of the Holy Spirit is fulfilled in that those 120 are baptized in the Spirit. And we talked about what does that mean about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament versus the New Testament. You'll have to listen to those sermons. They began to speak in tongues and all of us like, wait, and we get on pins and needles. What's going to be taught here? What is this speaking in tongues thing? To which we take a deep breath and say, we're going to read the Bible. And it's very clear in this particular text, it's very clear what speaking in tongues was. 
It was speaking in other languages. Which isn't that super cool that Jesus tells them, hey, I want you to go and spread the good news of all the wonderful things I've done, how to be saved, this gospel message to all the nations. But you've got to wait for the Holy Spirit because it's going to empower you to accomplish that. And then the first thing that we see in the Holy Spirit is that it fills these people and they begin to speak in other languages and there's approximately 15 different linguistic differences among these people and they're able to speak coherently to them sharing this good news. One of the first things that the Holy Spirit does is enable the gospel to go forward in a very plain way. But yet there are still people that then look upon that experience and see something and they say, I think these men are drunk. And Peter says, no, no, no. It's far too early for that. What's happening here is what was already prophesied in Joel chapter 2. That the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all the people. Not a specific people because of their genetics or because of where they're from, but because of their belief in me, their faith in me, their repentance made possible by my power. And then he goes on to preach. He says, This Jesus... That was appointed by God, endorsed by God, confirmed by God, was betrayed, handed over, and killed within the prearranged plan of the Father. That Jesus you crucified. To which would hit very hard. And we talked around, well, some of those people that are standing there probably weren't even there necessarily in sight of where Jesus was crucified. So how is that possible when we spend a, a week on that? He preaches this sermon, speaks of who Jesus is, what He has done, that He has died and He has rose again, and that He is not dead, but yet He is at the right hand of the Father in a place of authority. And so these people realize we crucified Jesus, the Messiah, the promised one, the one that came to save. What do we do now? Because the reality is, and this has recently settled into my soul, is that it's not that we, we offended this God and now He is dead. It's that we offended this God. He came and died for our sins and then is, is, is alive and sitting at the right hand of the Father in a place of authority. The God that we crucified is in a place of authority. Now what do we do? And He gives the answer. He says, repent and be baptized. And all those who believed were added to the kingdom. It wasn't by any of their work. It wasn't by their doing. It's not that they had to do a certain ritual first. It's that they placed their faith and their trust in Jesus on the cross for the forgiveness of their sins. And they were saved and added to the kingdom. We talked all about that for a week or two. And then we see the birth of the church right there, right? 3,000 are added to the number and we have this church and we see what do they do? They were devoted to listening to teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread and prayer. There was a deep sense um, that came over all of them, a deep sense of awe that came over all of them. We see miracles in chapter 2, and it said miracles were done by the apostles. They met together. They met needs together. They met in the temple together. They met in homes together. They worshiped daily in the temple together. They possessed great joy and generosity as it even came to the point at times where they'd sell what they had in order to care financially for others. They shared what they had in common. They were a family, adopted sons and and daughters of God coming together and living as a family. Fellowship, koinonia. 
And just as that portion ends and we see a glimpse, not an exhaustive explanation of what the church was doing, but a general look at what the church was doing, then we see some practical experiences listed. And the first one we get to is here in chapter 3. And we're going to read verses 1 through 3. Hey, is Blake back there? Can you double-click on my PowerPoint? And I'll run it from there. If you notice the heat, by the way, it's not that we have forgotten about a thermostat. It's that it is broken. And we had a wonderful saint, Steve Brown, here working on it last night, but we could not get it running. So uh, we will fix it, though. No worries. All right, three, verses one through three. Peter and John went to the temple one afternoon to take part in a three o'clock prayer service. As they approached the temple, a man, lame from birth, was being carried in. Each day he was put beside the temple gate, the one called the beautiful gate, so he could beg from the people going into the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. So Josephus in his Antiquities says that uh, there was an early morning prayer time, there was an afternoon prayer time, there's an evening prayer time, maybe some sprinkled in there. Typically, uh, prayer time, prayer time, sacrifice, although there were other sacrifices sometimes made, but it's just a worshipful moment, right? Some of us are like, well, why are they going to the temple? Don't they know that Jesus rose from the dead, that the curtain was torn, and that a man is not a mediator between us and God anymore, but Jesus is, fully God, fully man? And now that mediator sits at the right hand of the Father, and we have this personal relationship with Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Well, they're learning that. The book of Hebrews wasn't written yet, as well as the reality that old habits die hard, right? They keep going back to this place. Keep in mind, there's 3,000 people that have been added to the kingdom. What, which one of your houses are we going to gather 3,000 3, people in? It's not happening. And if it can, we should get to know each other because there might be times where we need to do church at your house. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so they go to the temple and they are still participating. There's nothing wrong with prayer services, right? They're going to these prayer services and there's 3,000 uh, that have been added to the kingdom and it's growing daily. And so for one of these services, you'd have hundreds of people, some would argue thousands of people coming through these gates. And so wouldn't it be wise of a beggar than to show up at a gate called the beautiful gate, the most, the most, maybe the most beautiful gate, where it's taken 20 people or more to close the gate, 20 people or more to open that gate. Uh, it has all sorts of decorations on it and it's plated in gold. Then to sit there as people come in to pray and as generosity is a, a, a focus, a center focus of this time, then to, then to be there and be asking for alms, asking for money, cash, survival, right? Makes total sense. There are some loving brothers and sisters that would drag them there every day. And so there he is, asking. Obviously, as the book of Hebrews came about, people understood more about the temple and what was expected there. Also, in 70 AD, there's a little tiny event that happened that also forced them to understand how that works. That was the destruction of the temple. But in the end, we have a man that was at a gate in desperate need, asking for alms. There's a story of a man who left his home country and traveled to another country to do two things. To write a commentary 
and to continue education. And he had to walk across this bridge every day to and from school. And he did this many, 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 many days. And there was always this man at the beginning of the bridge. And he personally felt convicted that I should be giving to this man who is begging. I should be generous with him. And so he would give to him often. And then after months and months and months of this, he realized that the people of the city knew who this man was. And to be honest, there's a man in Ione that was very much like this. We knew this man. And so we can identify that we can understand how a city could know of a man in need that is begging. And he then goes at one point to a market in, this, in the city square. And there's these, these tents set up. And somebody's selling pictures of the city. And he goes in and he sees a picture of the bridge that he must cross every day, back and forth. It was a beautiful picture. But as he looked closer, he could see that same man sitting in the picture 40 years earlier. The city knew him. He'd been there forever. That was his only hope. Similarly, we have this man. The inter- interesting thing about uh, interacting with beggars or panhandlers is I would argue, I'd feel safe to say that maybe with one exception, because there's always that person, the rest of us, we feel awkward interacting with people who are begging. And if you Google, should I give money to beggars, 6.3 million results come up. And all of them are asking the same question, right? People are going to Google to get this answer. Should we give? And among them are articles talking about why do we feel so uncomfortable? Because as you come up, one person said that as you approach a beggar, what you realize is that there's a human there and you're not far from that place. It's also awkward because they're in desperate need. And you feel conflicted. Shall I help this person? And what are the implications of helping this person? What does it change with my world? What are they going to do with it, right? In the end, we have Peter and John have the same experience. And I think we're going to see in the text here a little bit of that feeling that's happening. It says, and this will be verses 4 through 8. Peter and John looked at him intently as he sits there next to the gate. And Peter said, look at us. The lame man looked at them eagerly, expecting some money. But Peter said, I don't have any silver or gold for you, but I'll give you what I have. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, get up and walk. Then Peter took the lame man by the right hand and helped him up. And as he did, the man's feet and ankles were instantly healed and strengthened. He jumped up, stood on his feet, and began to walk. Then walking, leaping, and praising God, he went into the temple with them. There's an interesting text here I want to bring out. Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 through 6. This kind of stuff was prophesied, and it matters. It matters that these kind of things were prophesied. It says, And when he comes, he will open the eyes of the blind and unplug the ears of the deaf, and the lame will leap like a deer, and those who cannot speak will sing for joy. There's a word in there, leap. We saw it with Jesus. 
And we see it now again. In our text, it says, He jumped up, stood on his feet, and began to walk. Then walking, leaping, and praising God, he went to the temple. There's a Greek word used in the Septuagint for the Old Testament, right here for leap, and it's the same word here. It matters that we see Jesus fulfilling prophecy and that the apostles who are granted this ability are then doing the same thing. Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the middle of the night and asks some questions. And when Nicodemus shows up, he says, hey, I know you're of God or from God. I know that because of the miraculous signs and wonders that you've done. He's connecting the dots. And so now this is going to get into a little bit of your theology and doctrines of spiritual gifts and healings. But what we see is the apostles also doing those things and affirming that they are apostles and that their words are from God and that God is with them in a different way than Jesus, but still there to affirm what they are teaching. And so they go and they do these things. It's important. The healing there. When you have time to really look at what's being taught somewhere. This miracle is absolutely miraculous. Okay, what I mean by that is this wasn't a surgery done really well by a surgeon and three months of rehab with it, and we're like, wow, what a miracle that they can fix that. This was in that moment, muscle being grown, tendons being taut, joints coming together correctly, coordination being developed all in this moment so then not only has this person never walked it was congenital he never walked and we know what happens to muscle mass with that that he is healed and he can stand and he can walk and he can run and he can leap that's a miracle like an, this isn't the right phrase to use this isn't going to be in your theological book but this situation means business who can do this? Only one that is sent by God. Only one that has a message from God. In this situation, the apostles coming to teach and preach a word. And so what happens? Well, what we're seeing here, I believe, as we look a little bit at uh, sens sensationism or continuationism about re in regards to miracles and are we, should we still expect to be able to heal exactly like the apostles did? Or has that stopped in the uh, apostolic age? And is it no more? Like that's a conversation we're going to have. But let's just look at our text, right? Eisegesis is when we take our thoughts and ideas and then we read them into a text. And we try to interpret it that way. We don't do that. Exegesis is when we look at what's written there and we try to draw out what the intention of the author meant by that. Exegesis is for Bible study. Eisegesis is for your arguments with your spouse. Right? Where you just like try to input whatever you think they're trying to say and it turns into a big deal and you've got to go reconcile later. We don't do it with the Bible. Okay? We don't do it with the Bible. And so for this situation, it's very simple. Earlier in chapter 2, it says that Miracles and signs were done by the apostles. And then what do we see in the very next chapter in chapter 3? Just in this moment, we're going to see other things, I get it. In this moment, what do we see? We see the apostles then going on and doing those signs and wonders. And hopefully you caught 
the reasons why. Let's talk about 1 Corinthians 12, 12 just for a second. It says this, when I was with you, this is Paul, when I was with you, I certainly gave you proof that I am an apostle. So then the next sentence is going to be how he gave them proof that he was an apostle. For I patiently did many signs and wonders and miracles among you. That was his sign to them, that he was an apostle. Specific purpose is the apostle. So then it goes on. In 9 through 11, it says this. This is what happens after the miracle is done. The man gets up. He's running, jumping, leaping, doing all these things. Goes into the, the temple with them. Worships God with them. And people start hearing about this. They know the man. This is what happens. All the people saw him walking and heard him praising God. When they realized he was the lame beggar they had seen so often at the beautiful gate, they were absolutely astounded. They all rushed out in amazement to Solomon's colonnade where the man was holding tightly to Peter and John. They run out to this patio of sorts and they see this lame beggar holding, clinging tightly to Peter and John and there he is standing and he goes on obviously to show how he can jump and run and walk. How incredible is that? And essentially what's going through the mind is like, to what do we attribute this to? So what do you think Peter does? He preaches again. Let's not miss the pattern we see with miracles and signs of wonders and pointing to Jesus Christ as the ultimate sacrifice for sins to redeem his people back to himself. Next week we are going to look at that sermon. That's not true. Next week, we'll have a great update from a missionary. The following week, we're going to dig into this sermon now and look at Peter's second sermon. So as I conclude, I'm not going to over-spiritualize anything. I would love to. There's a lot of really cool things we can do with this. But what I want to do is just stick to what, what's there. We see Jesus commissioning them being filled with the Spirit, and then them going and, obeying, and being obedient to Jesus. And the apostles apparently are doing signs and wonders and miracles and pointing people to Jesus, affirming that my words are from God. And then when people gather and they say, to what do we attribute this to? They preach the gospel to these people about how to be saved. How to be forgiven. How to remove guilt. How to work in a world where there's conviction. How to live in the light of the reality that we're all in desperate need of a Savior. And whether we like to admit it or not, we're all looking for that Savior. We're looking for a Savior and, we're, and we, we will worship something. That is for sure. The Gospel points us to Jesus Christ as the one and only way to be reconciled to God. And in that sense... You and I are no different. That we all need Jesus. We are all sinners. We all fall short. None of us can do good. Our hearts are so evil we don't even know the depths of which it plums. We need Jesus. We need the Spirit. We need to be filled with the Spirit. And that is done by placing your faith and trust exclusively in Jesus Christ for the reconciling of sins. For your sins to be forgiven. For the wrath of God to be satisfied. And we talked about why that needs to happen. Because God is a just God. 
This deserves this. A just God has that payment, and Jesus came and took it for you and I, for those of us who place our faith in him. So we're about to sing a song here called Give Us Clean Hands. My hope as we look at this, we see how powerful God is. Not only can he be crucified on the cross, be buried, beat death, then he ascends to heaven and sits at the right hand of God in power and authority. And that should bring us to our knees and have us cry out things like, give us clean hands and give us pure hearts. Let us not lift our souls to another. Let us seek the face of God in light of the reality of who God is that we see in this text. The miracle worker. Let's pray. Father, this body here is blessed. Probably beyond what any of us can really even comprehend at the moment. I thank you for... uh, the followers of you that commune together here. I pray that our our songs would be sang with true-heartedness. I pray that our teachings would be from your word and that our primary desire and goal is to take from these words what you want your people to take. And then I pray that our lives would be slowly or quickly transformed by it. Many times we see your words say, save yourself from this crooked generation. God, I pray that we would never find hope in the secularism that's around us. Or in Amazon or in the new house or whatever it is. That our hearts would hunger and thirst and long for satisfaction in you alone. We love you. And in Jesus Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast by Cornerstone Church of Ione. We hope that you found it encouraging and challenging. Please feel free to share this podcast with friends and family, and we will see you all next week.